right, everybody. It's good to see you and good to be back. Let's get settled down, class. <laughs> and as you take your seats and grab your Bibles, I will say a word of prayer. And uh, that usually settles things down. Nobody wants to be yakking while pastor is praying. Amen? Amen. Father God, we look to you now for your living, breathing, active, sharper than a two-edged sword word, which is the way the Bible describes it, God, that you are able by your word to get down deep into our hearts and uh, discern our attitudes and the things that we need down deep, we pray, God, uh, that you administer this uh, sensitive subject, God. Um, Help us to, as you said, if you have ears, um, hear what the Spirit is saying. Help us do that. In Christ's name, amen. amen. All right. Well, to get back on track, Nero is on the throne here, and the heat is being turned up on believers like you and me here in first century Roman Empire, where we find ourselves uh, this morning. And Christians are really uh, suffering persecution for their faith. It's been 30 years since the death and the resurrection of Jesus our Lord. And churches have been established throughout the Roman Empire, uh, miraculously, from Jerusalem up through Syria, across Turkey, and then across uh, the sea there to uh, modern-day Europe. And so there are already churches established, lives are being transformed, and uh, really the light of Christ is shining in some very dark uh, places and uh, yeah not and not everyone thinks that's a good thing and so like those who prefer darkness uh, rather than light and so uh, there are some people out there who love their own sin more than they value their own soul and so like the emperor uh, he resents the message of the gospel and despises Christians uh, because they refuse to worship him as God <laughs> and they proclaim allegiance to another king and encourage others to do the same. And the Roman citizens under Nero bought into all the lies and propaganda about how terrible Christians are and they're offended with followers of Christ who are ditching the pagan celebrations and always talking about repentance of sin and the coming judgment. So it didn't take much for the devil to fan up some flames of hostility and make Christians the target of much hate and much malice. And so the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Peter to write a letter, which the Holy Spirit, who is God, is inspiring. And so First Peter and Second Peter, he wrote two letters, is the word of God to encourage believers, reminding them as they face persecution, the unspeakable blessings and reason for great joy, uh, even though they're uncomfortable uh, in the moment in a world that's hostile uh, to God. Uh, the second reason and the big theme of why he's writing is how to live for Christ in the face of that kind of hostility. How to maintain a compelling Christian witness even in the face of adversity. And that's what it's all about, really, from heaven's point of view, because God, our Savior, wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved God is not willing that anyone perish. That's 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and verse 4. So, And there's nothing more eye-opening to a lost soul or heart-softening than when believers who are mistreated respond in kindness. I mean, that really gets people's attention. It's more powerful than just preaching sometimes. In fact, uh, I think it was St. Francis of Assisi who's attributed saying, uh, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. And, and of course, it is necessary always to use words to tell people about the good news. But uh, the point is how powerful our actions and behavior uh, is in all of it. I mean, when you bless those who curse you, when you love somebody who hates you, when you forgive somebody who's wronged you and show them mercy, 
Boy, that is one powerful testimony, and it's life-changing. So this is the theme of 1 Peter, that more important than your rights or your comfort is God's testimony, so that people he loved and died for would come to the knowledge of the truth when they see him through how we live our lives. That's why our behavior matters. So we're going to get to the context here and pick back up in this section where that's the theme, is living and shining the light. Uh, Even when we're under pressure, uh, he said, live such beautiful lives despite mistreatment that, uh, that from those who oppose you, that they would see your gracious response and be drawn to the Lord. So this is the idea here in the uh, getting up to the passage where we pick back up. Uh, you know, this is the truth. I mean, just because someone insults you or mistreats you doesn't give you a pass to behave badly. And this is what the Bible says. We're ambassadors of Christ. Christ's spirit lives in us and we represent him. Therefore, our behavior 24-7, it's irrelevant how we're being treated. We have to always respond as in like character as the one we represent, the one who's shining in us. And so this is the point. They weren't doing that. They were not doing that. That's why First Peter exists. It says, listen up, people. You see that we have a responsibility and more important than anything else is that somebody doesn't perish. That is an eternal tragedy that can be avoided. And uh, so God is looking to us to behave uh, properly. And the major theme of this section, and I promise you we're getting to the text, uh, is uh, is uh, the way we live a beautiful life is to be humble and submitted to authority wherever you find it. And as we were seeing back when I was speaking last month, that you find authority in every square inch of the planet. Uh, there's nowhere you can go on earth where somebody isn't responsible, somebody's in charge, and yielding to authority that ultimately can be traced back to God is required. And so uh, Christians understand that. And the couple sentences here that give you the feel of the um, topic at hand and the section, the context, uh, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Uh, not always pleasant to hear or to carry out. Uh, and so, yeah, the problem is uh, that uh, it's twofold. One is our nature, our fallen nature, doesn't, is not inclined to yield to authority. And secondly, uh, those who are in positions of authority are often uh, lorded over people. In other words, they're bossy or rude or harsh or self-serving and worse. So it makes it hard. Uh, nevertheless, the Holy Spirit is telling believers, it doesn't matter how you're treated or how you feel. It's irrelevant uh, to how you must respond because, as I've been saying, you're a representative of Christ. And so a good life that witnesses to Christ and pleases God, respects and submits to authority uh, wherever you find it. And now he jumps into three areas where we find authority, where we need to be respectful and compliant. And our passage is the third arena. So the first and the second, the first one was we respect authority in civil matters, where we're to be ideal, law-abiding citizens, even though those who are in charge are godless or obnoxious. We honor the emperor, he says. Uh, We don't disrespect him. That's what that means. In other words, if somebody's in high office, we show respect by not disrespecting them, by mocking them and hating them and slandering them. Instead, we pray for them and uh, we live above reproach. And of course, uh, we are off the hook if uh, in authority, if authority is used to force us to sin or to go against God's word or or to do something that's wrong, uh, then all bets are off and we obey God and not man. But in every other area, in civil matters especially, we are to be peaceable people, not the troublemakers. 
the ideal citizens. The next arena he talked about, number two, was the workplace, which is very difficult. And he talked about servants and masters, and that motif uh, translates very well to employees and bosses. And he said, listen, if you're a Christian and you're an employee, you need to work with all your heart, wholeheartedly. Five times he mentioned wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, five times, uh, diligently, to please that employer for Christ's sake and the testimony of the gospel, uh, even uh, when they are harsh and unreasonable. He said, he, he was saying, blow that nasty supervisor's mind, win them to the Lord, uh, be polite and working hard, just kind of kill them with kindness. That's kind of a biblical idea. And then next up is authority flow in the home. And as I've been saying, authority exists everywhere. That's how God has ordered life. It's in the church, it's in the home, it's in the school, it's in the skies. We were just flying home from Los Angeles and a stewardess was giving orders. You see, she has that authority. You don't go anywhere, as I've been saying. And so uh, the home is included. And uh, so uh, that is our passage for this morning. The flow of authority and, uh, yeah, a sensitive subject uh, for sure. Uh, But interestingly, and before we dive into the text, um, right before... He gives us the flow of authority with husbands and wives. Uh, He strategically gives this poignant example of the Lord Jesus. And And he talks about how Jesus, for our sakes, humbled himself and came under God the Father. He submitted his life. He uses those words. Jesus submitted himself, though he was equal to God in every way and humbled himself and came under God the Father's plan, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted himself, not only to God the Father, but to his, when he was 13, he came under, and the word uh, in the gospel says this, he came under his mother and his stepfather. He didn't have an earthly father. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit, but he subjugated himself and went to the cross and laid down on a piece of wood that he created, coming under in submission to the plan. And then he says, dear Christian wives, in the same way, you need to be submissive and yield to your husband's leadership authority that comes from God. So perfectly placed to make it easier to hear these words, and here they are. Let's read through the passage. Wives, in the same way as Jesus submitted, and we all submit to governing authorities and employers, and it's an everyday occurrence, in the same way, wives, your role, be yielding to your husbands so that if any of them don't believe, they're not believers, they may be won over without the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, and the idea is only, merely, but such as braided hair and wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. He's not prohibiting that. He's just saying instead the greater emphasis, uh, it's more impactful and profound beauty, should be of your inner self, the unfading beauty, beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. He continues on. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham. Uh, He's got something in mind there. She went along with a plan that wasn't the smartest thing in the world, but she yielded to uh, him and to God, and God brought some really good things out of it and called him her master, it doesn't mean that she, I hate to burst your bubbles, gentlemen, but it, <laughs> it doesn't mean that she addressed him 
as master. It means she thought of him with such great respect, like her knight in shining armor, kind of yes, sir, from the heart kind of thing. Uh, something that's a little bit awkward uh, for our postmodern ears. Uh, so you are her daughters. If you do what is right and don't give way to fear, what's he mean by fear? Don't give way to, well, if I submit to him, then what? Then, well, then what will happen? Oh, no. And, uh, you know, he can't do this like uh, well, don't give way to your fear, but submit to your husband as unto the Lord, you see. And so we're not talking about abuse. We're not talking about um, any such thing. We're talking about in general terms, in general ways, where the husband is not a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, husbands, in the same way, be considered. It means to study your wife, understand her, which will take a miracle, yes. But, <laughs> and and uh, equal opportunity, it will take a miracle for them to understand us as well, uh, for sure. We're, we are two different uh, species uh, uh, in some ways, uh, in the way we think and behave anyway. In the same way, study your wife, and live with her and treat, uh, treat them with respect as the weaker partner, as heirs, equal heirs. The word means equal heirs. She's equal in worth and value and dignity before God. Uh, with the, uh, she's an heir with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers, gentlemen. We don't want our prayers hindered. We want them helped and assisted, right? And so this is a general principle, this last thought here, that uh, when things are out of whack, we think we can treat people rudely and shortly and whatever, and then, then God, our, our life with God is a separate category, which is not. He's saying that when we mistreat people, that it's enough to interrupt your relationship with God from heaven's point of view. So it's a great passage. We are going to uh, take a look at that now. Now, funny thing, somebody was saying uh, uh, or, or, or thinking, now I know why you took a sabbatical, because you saw this verse coming and <laughs> you ran for the hills. <laughs> well, and it, not true. And so uh, actually I enjoy teaching difficult passages because it's the word of God. And no matter the complexities, uh, Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. So, uh, and besides, I found out through the years, I've been doing this a while, uh, that controversial passages are never as controversial as they've been made to appear uh, by the world that so easily is duped by the evil one's attempt to distort the truth and make it say something it's not saying, uh, like uh, this verse in particular, uh, to distort the truth and make it sound restrictive and archaic and unappealing. And when it's the very thing that will make marriage beautiful, and not, I mean, he mentions husbands too, and husbands have to love their wives as Christ loves the church and give himself up and sacrifice unto death to make sure her needs are met. So it, it is, uh, um, there are two components there for sure. So Let's get to it. We're going to walk through the seven verses, but uh, I shouldn't surprise you that there'll be part uh, one and part two. This is part one, because we're only going to make it to verse one. <laughs> well, take a look at it, all right? Take a look at it. You could, a pastor could preach a month easy on just this. To unpack it, what does it mean? What does it not mean? How does that affect me? And what are, what are all of the implications of that one simple thought there. Wives in the same way, be submissive to your husband so that if you're married to an unbeliever, they can be won over, uh, not so much by words, but by your godly transformation uh, and your godly lifestyle. So let's dive in, shall we? First thing I want you to notice is uh, the beautiful phrase, in the same way. Because this is quite helpful to 
the ladies, for sure. It's a sensitive thing to have to hear. Uh, But what he's saying is, in the same way, dear Christian wives, as what just came, it links you to what just came before, and what just came before was the beautiful example of Jesus. Dear ladies, in the same way our Jesus submitted himself, in the same way that your husband has to submit himself to the governing authorities. And wherever he goes in life, we all submit. So as in the same way, ladies, that everyone has to yield sometime during the day, somewhere, then also take your role and follow in God's plan that God has made the husband responsible for the marriage and so yield to his leadership in the same way. And so in other words, and and a phrase that comes before is uh, out of the reverence for God, we submit our lives and subject ourselves. Uh, So he's really saying, uh, really, out of reverence for the Lord, the wife yields to her husband's leadership. And so that said... Uh, And I've been saying, you know, you're going to find authority everywhere. And here's the deal. There's no place on earth where somebody isn't in charge. And, and, and this is the one who's responsible and, and, and God holds them accountable. And that's why he's delegated authority to them for this purpose, to make sure everything runs smoothly, efficiently, properly, and serving the best interests of everyone involved. And he will answer to God or she will answer to God for that sphere of influence that he delegated them authority uh, not to serve themselves but to serve his good purposes that everybody's needs in this uh, given area should be met. So ladies, one thing you will never have to worry about uh, when you stand before Christ and you all will and so will we. But you will not be answering to the Lord for the state and condition of your marriage Nope, it's all on him. Did you ever notice that the fall of mankind in the New Testament is always attributed to Adam? Who was first? Oh, no, no, no. The New Testament says it's because of one man's disobedience. Why? He's the head of the household and he sinned and he is responsible. You see? That's how it goes with somebody in authority. Yes, they have authority to serve, to help, to make things happen in a in a, a proper way, but they have accountability too. And that's why when a church has a hit piece run in the paper, there's only one name that's drugged through the mud. Only one. Though there are five leaders and a dozen contributing factors and hundreds of other voices involved and cheering the pastor on, there's only one name that gets pummeled and harassed in the papers. Only one. Because that one person will answer to God for all of it, you see. So it's not just oh, who's in charge, it's who's in charge and God expects uh, compliance and yieldedness and respect to that authority uh, because they're accountable to God to serve him in the best interests of everybody involved. And so, and so that's the helpful nuance there. So some may be wondering, you know, I noticed there are six verses for the wives and one verse for the men. Now, some could uh, argue, wink, wink, that God knows women can handle details. They tend to be multitaskers. But when it comes to men, he's like, okay, guys, listen up. I go one thing for you. Focus. I'm going to be focused right here. We're just going to do one uh, little verse. And so uh, I, I don't think that's what's going on because when you hear what really was the case, it'll make total sense to you. 
Back in the first century in the Roman Empire, the husband would come. If the husband came to Christ first, things went pretty smoothly, straightforward, as smoothly as possible. Uh, He's the head of the household. He becomes a believer. He wants to live a Christian life. His wife and his kids, uh, they kind of follow suit. They follow. It's not, it wasn't a big deal. However, if his wife came to faith first, which thousands, thousands of women throughout the empire, it was like a flame through the prairie wilderness. Uh, Women were, were coming to Christ in droves and they were married to unbelievers. And they were well-intentioned, but going about it in the wrong way. And so they were tempted there to disregard and undermine and usurp the leadership role of the husband that God gave him. And uh, yeah, so marriages were, were being stressed and ruined and dissolved. Families were broken apart. Community was upset. And in, in the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome, was so important. And so Christianity, the gospel, was seen as the cause of subversion and disruption of the social order. You see, so that it was a big deal. So that's why she gets six verses and he gets a one. So let's say she was in the marketplace and the apostle Paul comes through and he's preaching up a storm and she puts her faith in Christ. And now she knows the truth about life. Heaven and hell? He doesn't. She wants to talk about the Lord. He doesn't. She wants to start the day praying. He doesn't. She wants to give to the Lord's work. He doesn't. He may still use bad language, of course. He's not a believer. He, he has all kinds of vices. Who doesn't? Uh, he thinks it's fun to drink too much with his buddies at work. Uh, he believes in all kinds of nonsense. You know, Romans God, God, Roman gods and goddesses and all of this. He's mired in superstitions. How does, how does she come back into the marriage with, with a new heart and with all of this knowledge and goodness and enthusiasm and joy and not upset the apple cart Right? Well, the six verses of wisdom, you know? And number one, don't try to strong arm him with words. Of course she has to use words to explain the gospel, uh, guided by his cues. How much is he interested in? How is he doing as she unfolds the truth? Does he want more information? Is he okay with it? She's being guided, and as soon as he's like, what? No. Ah, a little less lecturing and more love and respect. That's what the Bible will say. And you see, this isn't just for wives. Oh, my goodness. This is for everybody who's trying to communicate anything, especially when you're trying to share the gospel with somebody. Once they've got the basic idea, you stop. Or you sound like you're nagging, or you're repeating, or you're arguing, or you're bickering, and it's just fruitless and futile. It's a big waste of time. So uh, it wasn't about words, but that's the thing. We always think more words will help. We always think more words will help. And, and they understand that more words won't help. More words to God about them than to them. That'll help for sure. And so this is what he's trying to say here. And so, yeah, don't ply him with words. Um, Now, uh, because especially the gospel's corrective. So it should be correcting him, correcting the way he thinks, his worldview, everything. The gospel's a corrective. So it's really, you've got to be sensitive with the gospel. Now, uh, let's let's talk about this. Men in the first century, and the second century, and the third century, and the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, and all the way up to the 21st century, men have a hard time receiving instruction and correction. All right. And I have written down here, and both genders are included here. And let me just ask you a question. All right. You know the love languages? You know? 
uh, have you ever seen listed uh, the, the, the love language of being corrected? How many of you love, that's your love language. <laughs> you just love it. You love to be told, hey, you're thinking the wrong way. You're going to be thinking this way. Yeah, no, I, I've looked in Gary Chapman's book. It's not there. All, all, all right, so, so, so the same thing. So uh, the, the men don't want to be corrected, okay, uh, or, or instructed per se. Look at our natures. Uh, you know, we're talking about men. Here's an example. They go to Ikea, and they get some kind of box of a contraption, and they bring it home, and the first thing they do is take out the big thing of instructions and cast it aside. <laughs> and the wife says, aren't you going to read the instructions? And he goes, oh, no, I don't need that. And so he puts together the contraption, right? And when she's out of the room, he notices that there's three parts in the box still, but the thing's together. So he's concerned, right? So he goes and he gets the instructions when she's not looking. See? That's how we are kind of, it's truly, truly a grace from heaven to find a teachable person, male or female. It's just a grace from God. Uh, men don't want to hear it from a boss, a friend, uh, and let alone, least of all, their wives. Here's what they want from their wives. I'm just going to give you this for free, ladies. They want to feel respected. Like you look up at them like, oh, that's my man, that's my man, right? Oh my goodness. And, and, and we, don't, we don't want to be in, uh, directed, we want to be uh, respected. And so uh, instructing a guy with especially the wrong tone uh, makes him feel stupid and less than and embarrassed and so... Uh, that's just the way it is. And it works both ways, I believe. And so wise women, they know how men are. And, and, and wives have mastered the art of directing their husbands in such a way the husband doesn't realize she's doing it. <laughs> right? <clears throat> and so he, he thinks he comes up with a cool idea. And she's like, oh, that's great. Uh, <laughs> When she's the one who did it, you know, she's the one who put it in there. So, uh, so let's say this, though a first century wife gets saved, as we call it, because the biggest thing, someone asked me, why do you always, why do you guys call it, are you saved? Oh, I'm saved. Well, because the most important thing is that we're not going to hell. So we're saved. So when the wife would get saved, she'd feel obligated to confront him and to school him and to take charge, right? So, so she'd be saying on a daily basis, you've got to stop this whole Zeus thing. There's no such thing as Zeus. We've got a little statue of Zeus and you always walk by and bat his head. Stop it. In fact, I'm going to take this to the dump. You're going to take Zeus to the dump? Yeah, no, that's not good, ladies. Okay, leave Zeus alone. Let God deal with Zeus. Uh, you have to, and she's like, you got to stop doing that. you got to start doing this instead. Or we can't hang out with those people anymore. i got new friends, and, and, and it's from a church. What's a church? Oh, i got new friends. You don't need your old friends anymore. Oh, this isn't going well. And so, yeah, and, and about those cigarettes, and, and, and about your Elvis collection. I tried that first service and it was dead. <laughs> and I, I took a pen and scratched it out. And then right here I just thought, I'm going to try it. <laughs> yeah. How about this one? No more bowling on Wednesday night. We've got a wanna. <laughs> All right. So, well, listen, let me say this for these women. Well-intentioned but it amounts to leading him. And, and listen, without a change of heart, and this is a bigger picture, it applies all over the place. Without a change of heart, all the words are useless. You've got to want to change. That's God's job. You see? So you do your best and you leave the rest 
with the Lord. That's how it goes. Now, what's contributing to the struggle on both parts? The husband, uh, when he doesn't love the wife as Christ loved the church to humble himself, sacrifice his life to death for her and for the wife who resists him and tries to wrestle the reins from him. Well, here's the deal. We We were dropped as infants, all right? As babies, we were dropped, okay? And honestly, in the fall, which is what it's called, we... Our DNA got injured, and so here, here's the struggle is between husband and wife. Eve stepped out and usurped her husband's authority, and Adam went along with it and ate with eyes wide open, and they both became sinners, and then God tells them, them as a consequence, and both of these sentences are a consequence of the fall. He said, there's going to be a power struggle now because of what you guys did. And he said, quote, Genesis 3.16, I might have it here for you. You will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, both of those are polar opposite of what God intended marriage to be. But because sin got a hold of our hearts, it perverted things and made it just the opposite. And so instead of lovingly complying and following, uh, daughters of Eve are going to be always tempted to wrestle the reins from their husband. It's in their DNA. And God gave uh, us a shout out. And husbands are going to be tempted to um, ride roughshod, uh, kind of to dominate their wives, to rule over them, you see, instead of to, to wash her feet, to serve her, to love and to cherish her, not to rule her, you see. So sin gets in there, and it makes her resistant to him and disrespectful and makes him less loving. And there's this cycle, the crazy cycle that goes, she feels not loved, so she acts in disrespectful ways. He feels disrespected, and so he acts in unloving ways. And it goes on and on and on until somebody's going to change. And then both of them say, why do I have to be the first one to change? And they go back into the cycle until someone says, why not me? Why not me? And so there you have it. That's the struggle. They're now happily with redemption, with the blood of Christ being shed. And then we, we call on him. And what happens is the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts at conversion and raises us to new life. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Now you have a new nature. Now the husband looks at the wife and says, this is the woman God gave me to love and to serve, to, to, to provide and to protect and, and live my life selflessly that she could be all that God intended for her to be. And then she looks as a Christian who's redeemed at that man and say, he's not perfect, but he's the man God put as the head of the home. And for the Lord's sake, I will submit myself and respect him and make him know from my heart I admire him and respect him for just the mere fact that God put him there. You see, and of course, take out all of the abusive things. Take all of that out, because we're not talking about that. Because I heard some of you go, well, "What if? What if?" Well, yeah, no, none of that. That's another sermon. All right. Generally speaking, I think you get it. So, yeah, wives submit to your husbands. What it's not. Let's talk about this. <laughs> what it's not. Oh, dear ladies, it's not like the world says. You see, the Bible wants to subjugate women. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, 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 no. It's just about flow and practicality and function. That's all. Uh, a CEO is on a flight. He makes millions of dollars. He's a genius. The stewardess tells him, uh, sir, why are you standing there? Uh, the light's on. You can't stand that close to the cockpit. Go sit down. He can go. 
excuse me? I'm a CEO, okay? You know, no, no, he submits. Does it make him less of a genius at business? Does it deplete his bank account? Does it, does it, does it lessen, make him less in any way? No, the function, the function, that's all it is is function for the flow. That's what's going on there. And, and we've already talked about it, but Jesus is God in every way, equal to God. Spurgeon calls him very God of very God. He, Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. And yet he comes under. You see? Why? Because the Father initiates and the Son executes the plan. It's functionality, only function. This is what he's talking about here. Function, purpose, and design, uh, importance, dignity, and honor are all equal, worth and value. It's all about design. The two become one. There has to be one leading. You know, our kids were into swing dance. You all know about the old uh, Nordquist Dance Club. And one of our sons is pretty good on his feet. He had a dance partner, and they won first prize. And it was a big deal. And so after this beautiful dance, I was watching all of these moves. Oh, my goodness. must have taken you so long to practice that, I said to him. And he said, Dad, it's pretty easy. She just follows my lead. She just follows my lead. I'm leading, and she's following. And I started thinking about that. Oh, my goodness. If, if, if they were both leading, that would not win first prize. It would look... <laughs> More like some kind of wrestling match. Uh, you know, it would look really ugly, you see. And the thing about marriage is its highest priority and purpose is not our fulfillment. It's to reflect the gospel that Christ and the church, the bridegroom and his bride, you see. So how does it look? When marriages are spastic and they're stepping on each other's toes and hurting one another and making a mess of things. It's making a mess of your testimony for the gospel's sake for one thing and and doing a host of damage in a whole lot of, of areas for sure. So that is really... Submission is not for sure. Uh, Losing her personality, it doesn't mean she doesn't have opinions or insights or she contributes with ambitions and, and equal insights for sure. On the contrary, you know, she brings stability. Her gifts are given to her uh, to help the marriage and help the husband. And what he can't see, she can see. And where he's weak, she is strong. And, and she's a gift. And it says so in Proverbs 18. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. The word means treasure. And obtains favor from the Lord. Why? Well, listen up. The Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. It's just not good. He looked at the guy and says, oh no, he needs a wife. (laughs) And that's exactly what he said. I will make a helper suitable for him. He used the word for you all who will be a wife or are a wife. He he called you Azir, help. You are, that's your name, help. Uh, King James, help me, help me, right? Okay, the same word is used of how God saves and rescues. Take a look. Psalms. My soul waits for the Lord. He is my Eve's name. I will make him Eve. I will make him a wife. Same word. He is my help and my shield. Psalm 33, 20. But I am poor and needy. Make haste unto me, King James. Oh God, thou art my help. There's the word. And my deliverer. So every man who's been married to a wife knows that she has rescued him over and over and over again. And all who agree with that say amen. amen. A little louder. <laughs> you know why? Because your wife is sitting here. 
and you're going to get in the car and she's going to go, I know she didn't say amen there. <laughs> Do you want to leave this sermon and have a fight in the car? <laughs> wow. So let's follow the logic here. If God made a helper, wouldn't you think that he wants her to contribute fully and completely and daily to be who she's created to be? You see? So submission does not mean she doesn't use her gifts or fulfill the purpose for which she has been created to speak and to feel and to live and to to make that marriage a beautiful thing. You see, she has insight that needs to be given full weight. Ask Abraham about that since Abraham's in the passage, Genesis 21. I'll explain it really quickly. (laughs) It's a beautiful story. Uh, God promised them a son. Neither of them, because of their age, could have kids. And so uh, it was Sarah's idea the wife's idea, uh, she got impatient and she said, look, this isn't happening, uh, so let's get a surrogate, Hagar, and, uh, you know, you can be with Hagar and uh, she can be the surrogate. And Ishmael was born. And so Abraham became smitten with that. He, he was the firstborn. After all those years, he's an old man and here's this little baby, it's his baby. And he loves Ishmael. But guess what happens? Ishmael, then Isaac is born miraculously. And he's second born. And Abraham's smitten with Ishmael. And now there's rivalry between Hagar, the surrogate, and Sarah. And now Sarah has changed her mind. First of all, she blames her husband for the whole thing. She says, look what you've done to me. The Bible's clear. It was 100% her fault, 100% her doing, and she blames him. And I'm not going to make a comment about that. (laughs) And I didn't, did I? See? And so she, uh, Isaac says, oh, Lord, just make it work with Ishmael. Come on. And then here's what the response comes, Genesis. But God told Abraham, Don't be upset over Ishmael and Hagar. Listen to your wife and do whatever your wife tells you. For Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be blessed. So so what did uh, Sarah want? Sarah wanted them to move out. And he didn't want that to happen. And he says, listen and obey. Husbands, obey your wife in this situation. So what is this? The idea is in Ephesians chapter 5, I have it for you. There's just a little snippet here. It's very interesting. I hope you catch this. When he talks that famous passage about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and wives submit to your husbands, which he starts with, look at the verse that starts it all. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, in any relationship, there's give and take. There's yielding every day. So, so submission to the wife, this command, is not saying like he's an autocrat, that, you, you, that he never bends. No, there's mutual all day long, you know, back and forth. You know what I think uh, Tim Keller, who just passed away, prolific writer and Presbyterian pastor in New York City, his wife said something interesting, said um, about submission. She said, listen, in our marriage, we both get a vote. I vote, Tim votes, and if there's a tie, God gives him the tie-breaking vote. You see? Well, what if that leads us in the wrong way? Well, if it's sin and breaking the law, well, yeah, but if not, God will step in and save the day. You see? God has a way of doing that. Let me close out with a a story, and this is kind of how our marriage, the spirit of our marriage works. We were in Japan loving it, both of us, and uh, we had our third uh, baby there, (laughs) and uh, so they were one, three, and five. 
And uh, we came at the end of two-year term. Um, I was still enamored, and I still am, with Japan. And uh, I was learning Japanese, and my kids were learning. I wanted to stay on forever. I wanted to kids grow up and be, speak Japanese. Uh, we had friends we were working with there that their kids were bilingual, and I just saw the vision. And I thought, I love this place. I'm in love with this place. I'm in love with the ministry here. I want to stay. And she did it. She said, let's go home for th these reasons. And here's how she did it. She said, very sweetly, so much so that I didn't even understand how dear it was to her. Because she said, listen, I think it would be smart to go home. We've been here almost three years. Uh, let's, let's go home and let's see what the Lord has. I don't have a piece about it. I can't explain it. And I just think the kids will do better, whatever. And, and so we prayed about it. And then she said, but whatever you decide, I'm in. Of course. And so I went back and I said, I, I want to stay. I want to stay. Let's just trust God. Come on. I want to stay. So we were staying until one night we were talking and the kids and they had a big need and they weren't learning English and they weren't learning Japanese either. So there was a little bit of a problem and one of the kids had a little bit of a medical issue and I just, a light came on and said, and I said to her, you know, what do you think about going home? <laughs> what do you think about going home? And she's going, uh, you know, you think? Maybe, yeah, let's go home. And only later did I find out how important it was to her and how many tears she wept over dying to that desire to get out of a very tiny apartment with three babies where it rains most of the year and snows the rest. <laughs> you see, and uh, God had his way and opened my eyes, but that's how it is. She came under and she did it in such a way that gave space for God to speak to me his good will. Let's pray together. God, thank you for hard passages that once we understand them, God, they make sense to us and they give life. Help us to keep these truths close at hand, and especially if we are married, especially if there's been some strains and stress, God, as is common, Lord, even in the best of Christian marriages. Lord, for all of the complicated issues in our hearts and minds, even now we commit to you and we're thankful for the blood of Christ and we're glad we could come to the cross and just make sense of everything by resting in your love and the blood you've shed to cleanse us and um, make everything right. You just make everything right. It's all going to work out. That's when we see the cross, we think everything's going to be okay. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.